welcome to the Top Order Podcast, episode B of this week in cricket and our wrap-up of all the goings-on in cricket over the last couple of weeks. Look, it's been a pleasure to watch this series. We're going to talk um, India, Australia. Michael Vaughan, who I actually have a hobby of disagreeing with on social media, um, said that this was a better series than the 2005 Ashes. I'm sure as we go through it, um, we'll all make our own call on that. But I'd like to come back to that at the end of the pod when we've actually had a chance to chat through what was a thrilling, thrilling series um, in Australia. But we're going to do this in a slightly different way. So we're going to go losers and winners in terms of the players throughout these series. So, Bordy, I'm going to come to you last as per your uh, request. And I'm going to go to the universe boss first. So Raj ready up in the top right-hand corner of my screen. Shades on, cap backwards, uh, looking like uh, yeah, looking like a, a better-looking Chris Gale. Okay, so I'll go with uh, Ajinka Rahani. So presumably I, a winner. I think that he's a, a massive winner from this, uh, mainly around the, the stoic leadership that he showed throughout the series. We all know how talented he is with the bat, but uh, he showed uh, his leadership uh, to a massive extent during this series. Uh, the main highlight for me that I want to point out for him is the 100 that he scored in the first innings of the second test. Uh, that's just when he's taken over the reins. India's just been bowled out for 36, and he really put his hand up and, and led from the front. So I think he's a massive winner from this series. I think you're spot on to highlight that because, to me, that that's changed the series. That moment right there has completely changed the series. You know, they, they struggle again in that game. Even if I think even if they come away with a draw in that game, you know, a, a moderate fighting draw, I, I think Australia is still well, well on top in that series. But Ajinka Rahani came in, scored that 100 when runs have been so hard to come by in that series, and suddenly it was one all and it was back on. And it was, yeah, I, you know, I think we, we're going to get later on in this conversation even, and when people remember this series, they're going to remember the innings by Rashad Pant. They're going to remember... Pujara playing these long battling innings and just fighting, fighting hard. They're going to remember the debutants. They're going to remember Rohane's captaincy, but they're not necessarily going to think about that hundred. And that, uh, yeah, to me, that that was the the moment changer for this this whole series. And it's been talked about quite a lot with obviously Virat Kohli going home for the birth of his child and Rohane taking over that captaincy. We know that on the squad list, Coley's come back in with the C next to his name for the series against England that's coming up. Do you think there was serious debate around the selection table about whether or not um, Rahane might be an option for that captaincy? Or is that just the, the media talk, do you think? I don't think there was serious talk about Rahane keeping the captaincy, but what it has shown is that leadership doesn't just require you to have the open bracket C, close bracket next to your name. You know, leadership is more than about just being named as captain. And Ajinki Rahane is a fantastic leader of men. He he galvanized a dressing room that could quite easily have folded like a house of cards after, after that first test. Uh, he did an incredible job both managing his people and believing them and getting them to believe in themselves as well as tactically on the field. And I think he outpointed Tim Payne in all of those departments. He carried himself brilliantly as well. 
Uh, so if ever he's called upon again, I think he would be an outstanding leader for that Indian Red Bull side. I don't think there's any serious consideration outside some certain sections of the media that he would take over from Virat Kohli. I know there's lots of talk about Rohit taking over the captaincy of the white ball side to give Kohli a break from, from three-form responsibility. But if ever it comes to pass, India have a tr- tremendous leader and ready-made captain in Rahane. He is ready to go. Well, the, I mean, you you kind of, we've got a few areas that you named there that we could go to, but I mean, you mentioned pain. Are you ready for the Tim Payne conversation? Yeah, absolutely. You want to bring him up as, as your nomination, Stuart? Let's get into it. Oh, look, I mean, I think he's a massive loser from this series. I don't think we can, you know, there's no sugarcoating uh, that situation at all, and, and not necessarily for just losing the series. I think what uh, I think the thing that I want to highlight about it probably a little, you know, before this series, he was seen as someone who was changing the culture of Australian cricket. He was seen as someone who had been brought in when things were at their lowest and when they were really struggling and he turned it around. And, and I, you know, as far as I'm aware, he, he deserved some credit for that and, and fully deserved the credit that he was getting. But whether it's the stump mics, the comments that he made on there, whether it's, you know, his captaincy, whether it's them, you know, just losing the series from a position where after a while it looked like they were going to be, you know, easily winning the series, I think. You know, obviously Mm. when you bowl a team out for 36, it it feels like you're going to win the series pretty easily. Mm. Suddenly you then lose it after making comments like that and, and his stock, I mean, people have, People are wanting him gone. People are wanting him, you know, not good enough with the gloves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, where do you stand on all this now, Baldy? Well, there's a lot to unpack with Tim Payne. Uh, and let's so let's talk about uh, the leadership aspect first, and then Binksy can come in a- around the glove work. And I have a, I have a couple of takes on that. Um, I think to I think you know it's that old adage of it's more you than pain managed in that one game. <laughs> that's true. Um, uh, let's let's talk about the leadership. The Tim Payne had a had a couple of bad days under under pressure, so he got put under tremendous pressure from that Indian side. And on I can't remember if it was day three or day four of that third test, he cracked under that pressure and said things that he ultimately, but at the end of the day, regretted and probably still regrets now, and will will regret having said them long into the future. Because as soon as you make remarks like that, you can be made to look a fool. It's why batsmen should never sledge bowlers because ultimately it, you only get one chance and, and you can be made to look pretty silly. So, you know, Tim Payne had, had a little bit of egg on his, on his face for that. And I think it's not a great look having tried to build up an image and a culture of, of being better than that for want of a, for want of a better word, um, that, that now he's got to have that as a mark against him. And it is a mark against him in terms of his leadership for, for what he said to R Ashwin, um, in that, in that Sydney test. So, so I think there's probably not a lot to say around that other than that's kind of a black mark against an otherwise pretty decent record, um, as a, as a, as a cultural leader. Um, let's talk about his ability to captain the side tactically. Um, and I think, you know, you're never, you're never as good as your fans say you are when you're winning, but you're also never as good or you're never as bad as your critics say you are when you're losing. And I think there are a couple of aspects to that. One is that to put all of the blame, if you like, for Australia losing the Test Series on Tim Payne's shoulders does a massive discredit to how well India played. 
I don't think that the outcome of this series should be a zero-sum game in terms of India were this much above above zero, therefore Australia must be this much below. I think for the majority of the series, Australia played good cricket, but in key moments, we made tactical decisions that I think a lot of press disagreed with, a lot of former players disagreed with, and I think left a lot of people scratching their head. Uh, some specific examples are the tactics that we used either to go too much to the bouncer or not enough to the bouncer in, at certain times, uh, bowling too much lion and not enough Labuschagne, uh, too much defensive tactics. And we talked about that on our previous This Week in Cricket in terms of how uh, Lyon managed his battle with Chiteshwa Pujara in particular. Um, in total, though, I don't think he's as bad or has had as bad a series from a captaincy point of view as his harshest critics would point out. But then again, I don't think he was ever, um, and I don't think he's ever suggested himself or anyone has suggested that he's a brilliant tactician. Um, he was a leader for a, a team that was culturally in a crisis and he was the man for the job, but he's not as good a tactical captain as Fleming or Taylor or Steve War or or any of those guys really, um, and so to hold him to those standards I think is a little unfair. But he hasn't had the best series, and I think Australia have to acknowledge that. Uh, the key issue for me around his leadership is that the Australian selectors have said that they haven't discussed his leadership, and it was never questioned. And I think that's the point that really needs to hit home for a lot of people: is that he is not above reproach. He is not as bad as people have said that he is, um, particularly those who said he should never test, captain a test team again or should never play test cricket again. But the fact that the Australian selectors have not said, we need to look at leadership as an aspect of moving forward and how we can help Tim Payne improve as a leader, improve as a tactician between now and presumably the end of the Ashes series, which is, I think, he's got in his head that that's what, that was, what he wants to be as his swan song at the end of the next Australian summer. That's what's particularly concerning for me. Not that he had a couple of bad days, but doesn't seem like there's a recognition of that and a plan to address that from the selectors' point of view moving forward. Raj? Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. I agreed, I've agreed with everything you've said there. He was massively frustrated in those last two tests, but was, wasn't it good or didn't you enjoy seeing a bit of fire back in the belly of, of those you know, players and, and the captain? I think Australia have missed um, they've missed the mark in terms of the right level of aggression. Um, calling someone a dickhead in international cricket just makes you look silly. It doesn't actually intimidate the player that you're playing. Ravi Ashwin, you know, he's been playing cricket since he was a very young man. He's heard it all. He's not going to be phased by that. But to to call someone that, it doesn't paint you in a great light. And and I and I'll say I I've said things on a cricket field that have been along those lines. I'm not. Uh, without um, without any any history in terms of that. And I think that anyone who suggests otherwise is probably being a little bit disingenuous, but I don't think there's any need for that. I think controlled aggression is what Australia need more of. And we didn't see that from Mitchell Stark, who we'll get on to. We saw a little bit from Cummins, a little bit from Hazelwood. We didn't see enough controlled aggression from Lyon. And you can be aggressive as a spinner in terms of the way you attack the batsman and the way you try and get them out. Uh, so I think Australia lacked... Uh, intent and aggression, not necessarily um, get ready for a broken arm. You've just dropped the World Cup, Herschel. You know, you're a dickhead. We'll see you at the Gabba. Those kinds of things don't really ruffle feathers anymore. 
you're, you're right. When when you sort of start to cross that line, there's only one man in the world who who's a captain who's getting away with that, and that's Virat Kohli at the moment. And it's only one Virat Kohli. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out just before we go to Binksy to to slay Tim on his um, glove work was that uh, Tim Payne averaged over 40 in this series with the bat, and he played a really important innings in that first test. Uh, that 73 not out in the first innings. Mm. Uh, I feel was was massive as well as the the stuff where uh, Manus got let off in that first innings as well. But that seventy three not out went a long way to winning that game. So with yep, the bat, he's re- he's returned great numbers. Uh, we mm. talked about his career average. He's up there past Haddon. He's he's only got Gilchrist in front of him, I think, as a, from a career point of view for Australia. Mm. So yeah, I you know I just wanted to point that out that he did bat really well. Yeah, got to give him credit for that for sure. Look, I, I feel a, a little bit ill. Actually, I, I might need to go and get a, a COVID test tomorrow because I'm just going to back. I'm actually going to back Tim Payne here. And um, the, the bottom line is, look, there isn't a keeper in the history of the game that hasn't called someone a dickhead. The difference here is we've got stump microphones, and he's also painted himself out to be a bit of a choir boy over the past three or four years in terms of this elite level honesty crap that's been peddled uh, for the last two or three years. To pick up on Raj's point, you know, batting-wise, if he's had that series and hasn't had that game where he's missed three pretty um, convertible chances, shall we say, I think we're actually saying, do you know what? He's actually had a, a, a better than his career series from a cricketing perspective. You know, he sets extremely high standards with the gloves. I, I do think he's probably the best keeper in world cricket at the moment, pure, uh, pure gloveman. Um, that is, and has put up some really good numbers with the bat. I think what this has just proved, and Balder, you alluded to it, from a leadership perspective, there's a massive vacuum in that Australian side when you've got Pat Cummins being talked about as probably the next cab off the rank as skipper, but as a seam bowler who's playing, you know, three formats, he's not really a, a viable option, I don't think. And Tim Payne, I think, has got to be able to look at his senior players and, and certainly that batting lineup. And I'm sure we'll come on to it. But, you know, Warner, Head, Burns, Harris, Wade have all let him down really, really badly with the bat. And then two of his four bowlers that have played the majority of those test matches throughout the course of the, the summer um, in Stark and Lyon have also really let him down with the ball. So, I think, yeah, it's a little bit harsh to lump it all on him. And from a mm. tactical perspective, who's kidding that the, the, the captain makes the decisions on the field? They've got plans up the wazoo. He's implemented them. As a team, they will have known the areas that they wanted to bowl. I think it's got to come down to an extent to the execution um, of his players. And let's be brutally honest, Ashwin and Jadeja have absolutely outbowled Nathan Lyon in his home conditions where he's been very, very effective for a number of years. Uh, we'll get to Lyon, I'm sure, and, and the spinners, but I, you, you just touched on the um, the leadership stuff. Have they just given up on Steve Smith? Are they now never allowed to go back to him as a leader because of, you know, Sandpaper Gate and all that kind of stuff? He's not a leader, though, is he? He doesn't display any leadership qualities. You know, he absentmindedly goes and scratches someone's guard. I don't think that was malicious at all, but it ju- it just shows that he's got no awareness other than shadow batting, to be perfectly honest. And and from a tactical perspective, he was an awful captain himself. 
Yeah, you're, you're both absolutely right. There is a dearth of tactical leadership in that Australian team. And, and I, I take it back to of those guys who are ensconced in that Australian side, other than Warner, who I think has had a mark ruled across his name. I don't think Stephen Smith has, but you go back to who's captaining their state side. Who's captaining their BBL side? Who's captaining their franchise um, and, and and proving themselves a capable captain in that format? And you don't see any of those guys kept, you know, demonstrating captaincy and leadership outside of that Australian side. And that's one of the challenges that we've got is the only way that you can do that is to have a long shield career or first-class career, captain your state. Travis Head has done that, to be fair to him but he can't submit his role, cement his role in the Australian side. So there is a real question around leadership. I think Cummins is probably the natural uh, successor, at least in the short term. A lot's been spoken about Alex Carey's ability to captain the Australian side once Tim Payne retires. But if it's going to be Cummins, at least in the short term, he's going to have to drop a format, at least one format, and concentrate on his availability for test cricket and maybe T20 franchise cricket uh, and maybe drop one of those other formats. Australia's got plenty of bowlers who can step in and white ball uh, to take up the slack from Pat Cummins. So maybe that's one way of, of solving that leadership crisis. Adam, before we move off Tim Payne, just really quickly, I've got a question for you around his wicket-keeping. Do you think that those misses in the third and fourth test are an aberration or do you think it's indicative of a 35, 36-year-old wicketkeeper whose skills and sharpness, um, particularly up to the stumps, are starting to decline a little bit and we're seeing a gradual degradation of his skill level um, over the next little wee while between now and when he ultimately retires? Mate, I've not given him a full medical, so I can't really um, comment on that fully. All, all I would <laughs> say, though, is he looks a pretty fit guy. Um, the the stresses of the job, and I think probably just his um, probably getting a little bit complacent with how hard you need to work as a keeper, and, and trying to think of his next not funny sledge um, were probably that is downfall. I don't necessarily think it's a degradation of his keeping. I, I think you know he's meticulous in his skills throughout other parts of the series. So for me, that was a little blip. It, it's like a batter schnicking off twice and getting a pair, which you know, which happens. Um, yeah. yeah, so look, there's nowhere to hide when you've got the gloves on. When you miss one, you miss two. It, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, to an extent. So, no, I, I don't think it's uh, his keeping declining, um, but I think he'll be uh, he'll be working pretty hard on his keeping skills and and maybe um, yeah, trying to put his book of wicket keeping quips away and stop studying that for a little while. Will they throw us out a name? Uh, so we've had a winner, we've had a loser. Uh, let's throw out another winner, Shubman Gill. He's announced himself on on the Test cricketing stage in tremendous, tremendous um, form, um, and he, I, I was super impressed with with how he batted as a young guy, first to, tour to Australia, first look at Australian conditions and Test cricket against you know one of the world's premier bowling attacks as a whole and and premier you know world bowler in terms of you know at least his ICC ranking and Pat Cummins he just handled himself well and he looks every inch the test cricketer and the gulf between you know a really talented and prodigious talent in Prithvi Shaw and Shubman Gill at the top of that order for India I mean holy smokes he he is going to be a 10 or 12 year player for India uh, Shubman Gill he's classy off the back foot 
you know, drives down the ground really, really well, has a good temperament. Look, he does like to he does like to feel bad on ball, but there's nothing wrong with that. Plenty of Indian opening batsmen have, have had that over their careers and been tremendously successful. So um from a from a reputation standpoint, Shubman Gill's a massive winner for mine. Yeah, I mean the thing about that, I mean, and, and you mentioned it before, it flips to Prithvi Shaw and, and our guest, how he started that series as the incumbent opener. And now he's probably what fourth, if if that behind mm. you know behind Agarwal, behind uh, Rohit Sharma, behind Shubman Gill, and you know with with Shubman Gill there performing so well, yeah, it feels like maybe a little while before before Prithvi Shaw can you know can get his way back into that side. I did mm. want to segue a little bit from the the Shubman Gill point to suggest that I think the IPL is a big winner from. From this series, in terms of the fact that you look at someone like Shubman Gill, and, and probably the IPL in the sense that of what a help it is for India. I mean, there's been a lot of talk uh, around how the Ranji Trophy and that, that they've put a lot of time into building that and making that a really significant competition that players can step up from. But if you think about someone like Shubman Gill, he's gone to the he's played in the IPL. He's had experience facing Pat Cummins on a regular basis in the nets. He's gone out and played those young Indian players. They get to go out and play against the best players in the world who come to play in that competition against them. And there's probably no fear there now. He goes in and it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, I've faced these guys. It's, it's no worries about facing the best bowler in the world, even if it's in mm-hmm. Australia, even if it's, you know, all four of them at once. I just think that that's, that's a big advantage for India that, you know, people haven't necessarily always talked about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Raj, I know you were a big Shubman Gill fan over the course of the IPL. What have you made of his performances in this test series and, and what stood out for you? So uh, Shubman Gill, uh, we know he can play in India. He's got the record to, to back him up there. And seeing him come to Australia and just not be troubled by the bounce well, was incredible. The other thing that really, really stood out to me is just he makes good decisions. He plays the right balls. He leaves the right balls, which is incredible for someone of his age going to a foreign country and and, and making those decisions so early on. I mean, you look at someone like um, Pujara, who is a, a wall. He is the wall 2.0. You look at how he played Nathan Lyon versus how Shubman Gill played Nathan Lyon. He was a lot calmer, a lot more still. And I, I just, I find it really interesting. I feel like he is part of a new wave of talent that we're seeing come through. Uh, and I think it goes back to something we mentioned in, in part A of this, this podcast, where the Indian pitches over the last probably five years are starting to, starting to be a bit greener, starting to have a little bit of pace to them because they know they mm. need to, to win away they can't just play on dust bowls all the time and this is the sort of the the the, the flow and effects from what we're starting to see these younger players being able to go all around the world and play it's really good he was really good yeah he was he was tremendous let's move on Binksy your nomination uh, so we've had two winners Rahane and Gil uh, Payne a, a loser who else have you got who you'd like to nominate yeah, so look, I'm going to go pretty obvious and um, I'm going to go with Rishabh Pant. And I think, you know, we look at 
I think just some of the calmness that he showed, because he was getting no doubt, you know, we heard the stuff that was on the stump microphone publicly. I'm sure he was getting a heap of shit um, when those mics were turned down as well. Uh, and the way that particularly just let his bat do the talking in that final innings. I mean, it was a T20 innings, wasn't it, really? that Some of the shots that he played getting down on one knee with the scoop, um, just a, a level of bravery that, that was looked fantastic. Um, unfortunately for me to listen to, I was away on holiday without Sky Sports in my Airbnb, but was listening on the ABC. And that was enthralling, listening to the, the closing rights of that, uh, of that final test match. In terms of his glove work, he's been widely criticised as being an inferior wicketkeeper to Ridiman Saha. Uh, Saha famously played and kept uh, when Rishabh Pant was injured in that Sydney test. What did you make of his, his glove work? Certainly his batting is worthy of a spot in that Indian team now. But you know, going back to India for test series against England, what do you make of, of his ability to, to wear the gloves for India in, in that series? Yeah, so I think we've touched upon it a little bit with um, Raj's comment around the pitches in India and the fact that India now do have this attack for um, all conditions, really. And and I think I I said this at the start of the series when we were looking at who we thought would play in the side. And I'm pretty sure I said that Pant would play because I thought that they would go with, um, yeah, more of a a seam attack in Australia and therefore standing back was probably going to be a little bit more of the game than standing up to the spinners. Um, and look, notwithstanding the fact that Ashwin had a fantastic series and Jadeja came in in the two games that he played and, and certainly made an impact with his forfeit in that one game. Um, you saw Pant probably more comfortable um, when, you know, when he was able to, you know, to stand back with a lot of viewing time, uh, which you, you get in Australia typically. You know, you, your keepers obviously take the ball on their inside hip when it's, you know, at the peak of its bounce almost. Um, and visiting keepers have, are afforded that little bit more more time to see the ball and glove the ball. Still definitely a work in progress, but I think if you um, look back at that series, um, would they have been in that same position on day five of that last test match with with Saha coming into bat at number six or seven? I, I think it would be a very different conversation that we're having now. Stuart and Raj, what did you make of, of Punt's potentially match-winning performances? Oh look, it was magic, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you you don't get you don't get that many tests where you're coming into a situation on the final day where it's actually a run chase. It's not even you know it's it's, it's not about you know often you get to the fifth day and it's about someone trying to survive where the other team's trying to take wickets. You don't have both teams going for it that often in Test cricket, and you know it, it was it was a special special innings. I mean. Just talking about the fourth test, but his innings in the third test was was equally as good. It just didn't get them across the line. But mm. you know, yeah, absolutely magical performances. And and I think when when people think about this series, Punt's going to be the, you know one of the first names that that comes to the top of their mind in in ten years time and you know in, in fifteen years time when we are looking back at this series, thinking what a good one it was. Yeah, my my take on Rishabh Pant, I guess. There's that old adage, adage that uh, second innings runs don't count, right? Uh, so, but I guess without him uh, in the third test, they just wouldn't have had a sniff. And then, obviously, and then on the back of the series win, he was a huge difference maker, and, and he actually finished it off. He didn't leave it off, leave it to anybody else. Uh, I guess the biggest sort of compliment that I can give him is that uh, it was Gilchrist-like in the way that he shifted 
momentum in that in that yep. third test, and then also built upon that platform that was set by uh, Shubman Gill in that last test. Uh, I guess the biggest issue with uh, Rashad Pant, and this is a, a big win for him, uh, but you know people have long memories, and and Saha was the preferred keeper at the start of this series, and that was for a reason. Uh, in Australia, he's averaging 62. In India, he's averaging 92 with the bat. But everywhere else, he's he's below 30, below 20 in, in New Zealand and the West Indies. He's got to be more consistent around the world and, and more consistent just generally with the bat. Uh, but he's taken a huge step in this series, a massive winner. So, Bordy, off air, we've just been talking about uh, final winners and losers and can't decide on one loser. You're incensed with, I think, the, the situation with uh, Australian cricket to a certain extent at the moment. You've got a couple of losers that you want to um, introduce in, in a non-parochial uh, segment of the podcast. Well, I think, generally speaking, everyone in the Australian batting order who isn't Marnus and Steve Smith uh, needs to spend a little bit of time in the room of mirrors between now and South Africa because... Uh, I think if you're going to pick winners and losers, that Australian batting lineup was was a pretty big loser in terms of the overall outcome from the Test series. Having said that, my biggest gripe, my biggest beef, is with the selection policy and the justification of selections and the massive inconsistencies between the way that um, Joe Burns was treated and the way that Travis Head was treated and the way that Matthew Wade was treated over the course of the test series in terms of their selections. And then ultimately the way in which Matthew Wade and Travis Head have been treated in terms of their selection for the tour to South Africa. So to sum it all up in a nutshell, Joe Burns was given plenty of opportunity and a lot was said about loyalty. Um, Travis Head was dropped uh, despite averaging a reasonable average in test cricket, almost 40. Matthew Wade was asked to bat in an unfamiliar position where he'd never played before in first class or test cricket and open the batting for his country. Then he was asked to bat in the middle order and, and to be fair, didn't make a lot of runs, uh, but then has been summarily dropped as a result of this series. Um, Travis Head was dropped and has now been recalled for the South African series for, for the test team. And Matthew Wade's been selected in the white ball team. So there's no consistency there. And I don't think Australian selectors have painted a very clear picture at all of who they think of those two guys is the best person to take them forward. Um, they certainly haven't justified or spoken in any way, shape or form about why they dropped Travis Head, why Matthew Wade hasn't been picked to go to South Africa. Sure, there was a lot of talk about loyalty and that's why they kept Joe Burns. But if that's true, if that's the case, then why wasn't Wade on the plane to South Africa? Surely loyalty counts for some, something. If you've made a guy open the batting in an unfamiliar position, stuck him in the middle order, done this, done that, and then all of a sudden he, he, he's dropped. Raj, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think I heard a couple of quotes uh, during the week uh, where it's Trevor Holmes, isn't it? He's a selector. Trevor Holmes is the is Holmes, the yeah. head of the selection, the national so, selection panel. Yeah, when he was talking about Wade, he said that it just, you know, hasn't been the weight of runs aren't there. And and while I I agree that you know to some extent the the weight of runs haven't been there, his record's not entirely different from the last two or three years. You know, it was satisfactory then. However, now now it's not satisfactory. The thing that's got me really incensed is that it's similar to when we're talking about Tom Blunder with the with the Kiwis. He's doing something unfamiliar, moving to the top of the top of the order, and then he got dropped back to the middle order, and then he's been given this reason that that his numbers aren't, aren't good enough to get him on the plane. 
you've got Marcus Harris there, who is on the plane, I will say that, but he sat there and watched Matthew Wade open the first, first two tests, did no better than Wade in the fourth test, and he's managed to keep his uh, seat on the touring party over to South Africa, so it makes no sense to me. And the other quote that I found interesting about Travis Head was, they chose Head because he's got more upside. I feel like I was listening to, to Baldy's Basketball Monster podcast or something with a uh, talking about upsides and things, but I, I I find it very interesting. I'm not sure. Is this a bit of? Do you think there's a bit of panic button being pressed here by the selectors, or what do you think that is, Stu? Do you, do you think there's any thought that they're going to go with Pukowski at five? I, I feel like Pukowski might be the one that actually plays in that middle order in South Africa. So Hans, Hans, Hans. Holmes, he did address this. Holmes, he did address this. He said that David Warner and Pukowski are what he believes to be the opening combination for the future, but he yeah. didn't rule out Pukowski dropping down to the middle order either. So he's he's sitting on the fence. And that's 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 the problem for mine. So as a result of this series, Australian cricket now has far more questions than it does answers across a whole range of things. Leadership is one of them. Who's our who's our captain moving forward? And we have and the Australian selectors have at least said that they don't believe that Travis uh, that uh, Tim Payne is under any threat to the captaincy. And if you believe the English football parlance, that means he's going to be sacked tomorrow. But I do believe that that's what they're going to do. They're going to keep him around at least until the ashes. But there's no clear plan on leadership succession. There's no clear plan on how they're going to address. Uh, some of the, f- the failings in terms of leadership and particularly tactics. There seems to be, and I know that injuries have played a big part, but there seems to be no clear plan uh, around who's the best player to have in Australia's middle order and who's the best opening combination for Australia. Um, and I know that injuries played a big part in that and forcing the selectors' hands a little bit, but I, I just don't think that the way that they've selected Burns and then Harris and then Wade and now Head that there's any consistency in there and there's any clear plan either for this coming series or beyond that Australian cricket have got something that we can get behind as a, as a direction, as a way to move forward. Because if, if Travis head has more upside, um, then there was no way that Wade should have been picked for this test series. And certainly Travis head shouldn't have been dropped at all for Matthew Wade. If that's the line that you're going to toe, that Matthew Head has greater upside because he should be playing every test, um, and we should stick with him in the same way that we stuck with Steve War for the first twenty odd test innings when he didn't have a hundred, and look how he turned out. So the inconsistency and the lack of clear planning is the big loser for mine out of all of this. Well, in the interests of the storage plan that we've got for the podcast, if we let you go on, we're going to run out of gigabytes for uh, future episodes. I'm going to get over to. Lippy very shortly on the spin, but just to give some positivity to our Australian listeners, there is some good news for um, Australia just breaking on the wires at the moment. And that is that the Wiggles are going to be let in to managed isolation here in New Zealand for their upcoming uh, concert tour. So good news uh, for Australia, good news for Regan Baddeley, one of our listeners as well, who'll no doubt be able to go and see his favourite Wiggle. Um, but Lippy, over to you. Because you've got another loser, I think, and and Baldy's going to be crying into his VB, I think. Oh, it hurts me as well to to bring up Nathan Lyon's name in the loser category, but I think it it's indisputable that he he was a loser from the series. I do just want to quickly 
because I know we are running out of time, I do just want to quickly hit on some more positives for Australia. We won't go into it, but I think Pat Cummins was a big winner out of this series because of just the way he stood out above the rest of that attack as such a class bowler. And, yeah, uh, you know, for an, for an Australia side that has come away from this series with a, a lot of downsides, he's really stepped up and, and looked amazing. Even on that final day, it was basically Pat Cummins versus India. And, um, yeah, he, he was very strong. But back onto Lyon, look, I mean, you know, he, he – this was supposed to be – it was all set up for, for it to be Nathan Lyon's series. It was his 100th test in this final series. It was he was supposed to get his 400th wicket in this test wicket in this series. There was a lot of chat about him being the goat. There's a lot of comparisons with Ashwin. All of that stuff that he he had the opportunity twice to bowl his side to victory on a final day, which is what you dream of as a spinner. It's what he's actually done many times before for Australia. And you know, I think his career is is an outstanding career. There's there's no there's no debating that it's not, but yeah, he's come away from this test having his reputation take a little bit of a hit there because he just wasn't able to do it. I will caveat that by saying I think Payne let him down massively in this series. And I think if he takes those chances, gets Rishabh Pant early in both of those games when he should have, we're having an ex- a completely different conversation around the winners and losers of this even this test series and about Nathan Lyon and what a wonderful achievement it was for him to take his 400th wicket in his, in his 100th game and win the game for Australia. I really do think that those pain drops and missed chances of punt in both those games were hugely significant and match-changing. But, yeah, it's it's hard to argue with the fact that Lyon has, has come away from this. Baldy, I know you mentioned a lot about the fields, you want to have a word here on Nathan Lyons Fields? Because I, I, I heard him on the Howie Games podcast, which actually was a brilliant conversation. And, you know, the, his pathway to, to international cricket and, and I guess the passion that he plays with, I thought was infectious. I, I think I texted you and said, mm. it just made mm. me want to immediately go down and go down to the nets and, and get in the, and get in there and, and grab a ball and start bowling. But yeah, yeah, you, you've been quite critical about his fields in this series. I'm, I'm, I wasn't. I tried not to be critical, but I was. I was perplexed at some of the options that he took in terms of his field set, and particularly having a look at the success he enjoyed on day one of the first test with an, an offside bat pad, particularly to Tishwar Pujara, who he really troubled in that series. And after the first test, we talked about how successful and how dangerous Nathan Lyon looked, even on that first day against some of those top-order Indian players, challenging both sides of the bat, uh, bowling outside the off-stump and asking the Indian players to play outside off-stump where he could get uh, a squeeze into bat pad on the offside. He was looking to take an edge uh, to slip. He was looking for, for all sorts of dismissals. But gradually over the course of the series, for whatever reason, and, and Lyon was quoted as saying that having a bat pad on the offside makes him uncomfortable. He feels like he, he, he can't bowl the lines that he wants to with that field. I was just really perplexed by that. The other thing that perplexed me was opportunities that Australia could have taken to be really attacking and put pressure on the Indian batsmen with guys around the bat generally. Uh, we didn't take those opportunities. Um, I think I was, was texting the team on the on the Slack channel, two overs before lunch, 
uh, when Australia were really trying to or needed a wicket to, to change the game and to break a partnership. You know, India weren't looking to score big runs two overs before lunch with Lyon operating, but he had five guys on the fence. You know, he had a deep point on the fence. He had protection, at the, you know, long off and long on where he could have been taking that opportunity to put guys around the bat and ask more questions of the batsman. And, you know, over the course of his career, you can't question his effort. You can't question his record. But in this series, some of the, again, tactical decisions just left me really perplexed and and not so much an, an, an effort thing, but just trying to understand why he thought that was the best opportunity to take a wicket, because it certainly didn't look like that from my view. So open question uh, to, to the panel here. <clears throat> There's been talk about uh, Mitchell Starks placed in the side uh, going forward. Because uh, they've got you know bowlers like James Pattinson just just waiting in the wings, waiting to come in. Nathan Lyon, he's he's, a, he's been a great bowler. Assuming he's, a, he's had a really good career, but is it indicative of, of the depth of Australian spin bowling that there's not even sort of a mention of you know should should there be another spin bowler playing? I think that you have to give credit to Lyon to just how good his career has been to to make that distinction. There's also a massive age gap between him and the next guys coming up. So the next three guys off the rank, you would have to think of Mitchell Swepson from Queensland, uh, Adam Zampa, and then uh, probably Tanvir Sanger, uh, the young 19-year-old who we've just seen light up the big bash, taking 21 wickets, um, and was probably unlucky not to be named in the team of the tournament there, although he has been named in the white ball tour to come here to New Zealand for five t 20 So... The gap is not so much in terms of um, talent, but in terms of the longevity that those guys have had in their careers. I don't think there's any question that Nathan Lyon is the best spinner. I think Australian cricket can learn a lesson in that perhaps Manus Labuschagne could have a little bit more of an option as a as a part-time spinner if Lyon isn't being successful. Sure, he'll bowl a few four balls, but he'll also potentially bowl the odd wicket-taking ball in there to break a partnership and just change up the shape of the attack that Australia have got. So I like the balance. Um, I don't think Australia are going to go on the New Zealand route and pick four or five seamers and no spinner um, and rely on Manus as the sole spinner. But I think Australia in Lyon, they've got a guy that they can continue to look to long-term. Um, my question is how they're going to develop those other spinners and get them ready for test cricket and, and make them put pressure on him to perform it at, at the high level that he's been been performing for the last few years. Yeah, I, I will back that up completely. And I think I really think Lyon bowled well enough in this series to create enough chances to win those tests. So, I, you know, uh, he would he will feel disappointed that he didn't take that opportunity and and no doubt he'll he will think he could have bowled better at times on the field the fields he set it was really interesting to listen to his conversation with on the howie games after that series had concluded because he talks on there about how he sets his fields and how he 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 has no shame in putting a man on the boundary to stop someone playing their get out shot because he kind of thinks, why would I let you just get away, you know, get going with a, a boundary or if I've got you under pressure, why would I do that? So it was very interesting. And, and you know, yeah, I, I kind of agreed with you, Baldy, that I, I didn't think it was the right thing to, to let the pressure off and let singles going. But yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I could kind of understand where he's coming from. And, and I think he, he's got a good few years left in him if he can stay fit. He's, he's certainly still bowling with enough 
venom and, and bounce and and he's got a lot of craft and how he's got that overspin going and yeah I, I think he's a still a quality bowler and if not if not the best one of the best spinners going around so yeah absolutely so should we come on to our final winner which i think we're all gonna essentially agree was the series and and perhaps test cricket um on a whole but we said at the start of the segment um comparisons made with that 2005 ashes series and, and obviously a little bit of recency bias even with that 20 uh, 2005 series and, and obviously with this one that's just concluded but how good was the series do we think very very potentially long story short that was the greatest test series that i have watched and that i can remember having watched in my lifetime i can't remember um a story a narrative a fairy tale like that in test cricket that that i remember seeing a team that had you know, on paper and and by all reports, no right to win that series in Australia. That Indian side deserves so much credit. You, you could be critical of the Australian team, and we have tonight, but the Indian team in that Test series were just outstanding. And and to give them anything less than a hundred percent credit would be would be selling them short. They were they were incredible. And not only did they perform brilliantly on the field, they were classy off the field. They were classy in the way they carried themselves. You know, they presented Lyon with a with a signed jersey for his 100th test match. You know, everything about that Indian team was tremendously likable from start to finish. And I think for that reason, if, if no other reason, it's the greatest test series that I've watched and certainly the one that I've enjoyed watching the most in my 35 years of watching test cricket. I guess for me, the reason I liked this test series so much was that the, I felt that it was great balance between bat and ball. Uh, all throughout the series. I don't think that there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of runs being scored and there weren't uh, heaps of wickets being taken for, for not many runs. So that's what I liked. It was a series that seesawed all the way through. And, you know, all those advocates out there for four-day four day tests might need to just watch this series back again and, and rethink their, their stance, I think. Yeah, look, that, I mean, to me, that's the big winner out of all of this. You know, there's been people that we haven't even mentioned, like all those Indian debutantes who, who were just tremendous. They're, you know, there's, they deserve a huge amount of credit. Ravi Shastri, you know, all the Indian backroom staff. That, you know, I, there's, there's very few people in that Indian side that, that don't come out of this looking better. In terms of whether I see it as the, the greatest series of all, you know, of our lifetimes, that, that I've watched. I actually don't from a cricketing perspective. I really think that, uh, you know, that England Ashes, the 2005 Ashes series, I, I think actually the better cricket was played in that series. Whether that's the, you know, me thinking of the nostalgia and, and all of that kind of stuff, it, it's so hard to compare all of that kind of stuff. But I think your point, Baldy, on the actual narrative of the Test series, that, that, for sure, I think this goes down as probably the most unlikely and the most unlikely victories that are of a series and from from where it started and, and Coley going home and all the injuries and all of those things. I think it's the best narrative and, and all of that kind of stuff that I've seen. But from a cricketing perspective, I would say that there were parts of the series that just sort of plotted along a little bit and then came to life in those final days for me. So, yeah. That's, that's sort of where I stand on it. Yeah, for me, for me, I think it's a very close second. And, and look, I think a lot of that has got to come down to the parochial component. But even just looking at the stats of the two series, slightly more hundreds in that 
um, Ashes series. Of course, that was a five-match series as opposed to this one. But I think to Raj's point, that balance between um, bat and ball and, and England, I think, just really edged that um, 20, uh, 2005 Ashes with, you know, the battery that they had of bowlers, whereas I think India have arguably done it with, you know, two or three outstanding um, bowling performances, whereas, you know, England's even Ashley Giles as the kind of fifth bowler um, really provided something to that um, that series. But look... I, I can't wait for the World Test Championship. I, you know, I really hope it is India-Australia in that final because it'd be a, um, a lovely bit of niggle, I think. Um, the permutations probably suggest that that won't be the case, but um, it was one of those series that you really wanted to see carry on um, for, for, for another game or two, I think, um, with the way that it was poised. It's absolutely right about the World Test Championship. I mean, we've given it so much stick on this podcast and and I guess... You know, it, it's not a perfect system by any means, but the way that it's actually brought something extra to the way that these series and, you know, even our New Zealand summer, for example, we played two teams who were out of the Test Championship, but we still had a lot to play for. We had to win every Test. Everyone knew that at the start of the summer. They, they knew exactly what we had to do. And every Test, all the talk was around, can we keep this going? Can we put ourselves in a position to you know, compete for this World Test Championship final and, and, and certainly added something. So, yeah, I think if they can if they can continue to build on this and make it into a, a, you know, make all the permutations so that, one, people can understand everything, but two, they can they can be fair for all the nations around the world. It's It, it certainly is going to add something to Test cricket and, and that's not something I thought a year ago. Well, to finish on a positive for New Ze- for you New Zealand fans, there are 150 possible combinations of these final two series playing out. 140 of them result in New Zealand playing in the World Test Championship final. So from a permutation standpoint, you've got a really good chance of being there. So good luck, good luck to you. Well, I think that neatly wraps up the podcast. Um, stats, of course, for Pratt's though. So let's see what happens when we get um, out on the park um Baldy, i'm only joking um but guys it, it's been a pleasure um <laughs> chatting through um the second greatest series of all time it can go on the little shelf of dvds i've got the ashes greatest series of all time i've got nathan astle master blaster uh for the second best 200 in that game um, and then this india one can come um as my third great cricketing dvd but um guys we'll be back um together hopefully um not too distant future um, commentating on the Auckland cricket T20 final, which will be after this podcast um, airs, but um, that's going to be a great privilege for us to do a bit of live uh, commentary. We've got plenty more guests lined up on the podcast as well. So look out in the feed and we'll of course be back with this week in crickets to cover all the test cricket going on around the world, South Africa, Australia, England, India, and a whole, whole host more. Dip back into the back catalogue for your news, views, and interviews uh, from the world of cricket. Fantastic interview with Fadoz Munda, the ESPN South Africa correspondent in the recent feed that I'd urge everyone to go and take a listen to. Really informative about the goings-on in the game there. But for now, part B of this podcast over. So good night, God bless, and we'll see you soon.